Hi, and welcome to the Curious Cult Podcast, the show where I talk to incredible people about their fascinating curiosity. I am your obsessively curious host, Nick Haranambis, and in this episode, Rich Mulholland and I talk about storytelling in 2020, what it's like building and running a company for a quarter of a century, and how you decide what to focus on in life. Rich is a rock and roadie turned entrepreneur who founded the presentation powerhouse Missing Link. He's also co-founded 21 Tanks, Human Rights, and The Sales Department. He's written three books, Legacide, Boredom Slayer, and Storyseller, and is a global public speaker who in 2019 alone spoke in 26 countries on six continents. Mostly though, Rich is a husband, dad, brother, son, an uncle, and one of my closest friends. Rich, welcome to The Curious Cult. Thank you so much. Very, very excited to get curious with you. Uh, that sounds dirty when you say it like that. Every conversation we have. <laughs> So what I'd like to do, because this is the first time we're filming this, uh, could you give me a brief introduction to yourself? However you'd like to introduce yourself is cool. Yeah, so I'm a, a kind of accidental entrepreneur that started a business when I was 23 as a bit of a hobby. Sorry, 22 as a bit of a hobby and um, realized that when you start a business as a hobby, it sticks. Um, so I've gone through various years of, of um, getting bored and reignited and excited by different things and um, have never really worked out what it is that I want to do or be. And um, so I'm this guy who's on this journey who's still trying to figure shit out. Right. That sounds amazing. You're also, you and I discussed this last night, that you were struggling with the idea of curiosity, which I found laughable because you are probably the most curious person I've actually ever met. And I'm, our conversation will dive into what curiosity is. But before we get into the heavy parts of this, I've kind of tweaked some of my questions that my listeners will be used to because I know you so well. So the first question I'm going to ask you is, would your sisters call you a curious child? <laughs> my sisters would call me like an irritating child <laughs> okay that's great and why like why would like can you think of something when you were a teenager that they got geez rich could you just fucking shut up um well i think what they would say is that i was uh, i think all of us were and i guess you see i can it comes back to curiosity we all loved reading we all loved exploring we all loved escaping uh, so you know i was always in a book so i've always been uh, people confuse me I, like i confuse myself I, I use the term introvert but i understand that's not strictly correct it's just sometimes i enjoy the company of a book um, more than I necessarily enjoy the company of people because I like the whole world that's created. It's like uh, books were like the internet before we had the internet. You could, you could uh, instead of looking at your phone, you could open into something and escape into a whole other world where the outside world ceased to exist. So I think my yeah. sisters would have said that I was probably reading a lot. And even as a teen, then it was Dungeons and Dragons and things like this, or role-playing and creating. And um, yeah, so that would definitely be where they would start me off. I mean, I was probably a bit of an irritating shit as well. And I was always yeah. selling, always hustling, always selling something. Like I've, I've never remembered a time where That's I wasn't trying to sell something to people. Okay, but so like, when did you start? Because so I remember distinctly starting my first business at 16 and learning like, oh, that awkward selling feeling and getting over it and then trying to make money and going, oh, crap, there's money. That's awesome. Uh, when did that really start for you? Yes, yeah, so I was. Um, I was. My first job was at the spa, and that was when I was fourteen. So it was probably a year before that. I was um, in a newspaper. I, I it was this thing, earn money from home, blah blah blah, door to door sales, and it was called the National Sales Association, and this sounded legitimate to me. So I sent away your fifty rand, and what I got back was a stationery kit, and it was a kit of personalized um, business cards and um, uh, letterheads. Like people had their own stationery, and I would walk door to door. 
and I was 13 and I would sell people on having their own little personal business cards, their own little stationery, their own letter writing kits and things like this. And I did really well That's on that. Amazing. Like I bought a, a bicycle and I did pretty, like it was really cool. Um, then I sold fake perfume for a while. I did, it was another one of these because that was a thing you could do. You sent away in newspapers and you paid some money, you got a kit back and then you took orders using the kit and then they shipped you stuff. So I, I sent, I sold fake perfume to all my teachers. And that was a thing. And then um, I also uh, was always selling stuff. I worked at the spa and I was always trying to help sell basically stuff that was going off. <laughs> and that was cool. Nice. Getting it. So that kind of curiosity is obviously quite innate in you that, that not curiosity that obsession for selling and like hustling and i think when you're a teenager it is hustling it's not like you've got a formal plan what what were the people around you doing at the time like did they push you to do more of it or were they like jesus rich could you just go to school and study and can you think of anyone specifically who was like no dude you need to pursue this like become this thing be more curious and obsessive no like, I think like my parents, it's, it's quite weird, right? Because I think my parents are amazing. They're, they're phenomenal and they're, they've really shaped who we are. But I, I don't remember them ever, like, I think they just gave us a lot of permission, all of us. And I think I just always knew what, so I knew I always wanted to be a salesman. I never, ever wanted to go to university. I don't ever remember my parents ever having a conversation with me about what are you going to study? That, like, I don't think that ever happened. They never, wow. ever said that this is something you should go do. I don't think it ever, ever came up. And I think they were just always happy that, like I was independent and I was going out there and trying to make my own way. So the fact, and also we, we were very, we weren't wealthy at all. So, you know, South Africa went through quite a recession in the eighties and things. And, uh, and my parents didn't have cash. So if we wanted stuff, we had to go and figure out how to do it. But also my sisters, both my sisters before me worked. So it wasn't, it didn't even seem like something that had to be discussed. It was, and I, so I guess in that regard, that would answer the question is that, you know, on one side, somebody might push somebody and then you're influenced by somebody else. So maybe my parents went to my elder sister and said, listen, we need you to go and get a job on a Saturday. If you want this, this is what has to happen. But by the time mm. it got down to me, two siblings down, I didn't even question the validity. Like, I don't ever remember ever anyone saying to me, you got to go get a job. I just felt yeah. like, well, if I wanted to buy stuff like my sisters were getting, like, why did they get this cool stuff? And I guess there's the curiosity. Like, how can they get this? Oh, they do the work. And it's all about joining dots, right? And, um, and looking for patterns. And the, 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 to, to a 13 year old, um, she goes to work at a flea market stand, that big flea market by Market Square. Uh, mm -hmm. Both my sisters work there every Saturday morning and they buy cool stuff. Uh, and all I had to do is spot the pattern. The pattern was if you got up early on a Saturday morning and when it did work, you were able to have cool stuff. So it seemed like a no brainer to me. And you see, I would argue, and I do argue that that level of curiosity you feel is innate in everyone, but isn't. Most well, people feel fundamentally are not. Yeah, well, I mean, I do because it's it's in me. So I'm just like, oh, well, everyone must be this way. But the more I dig into this idea of are people curious about their lives, what they have, what they don't have, and why, the more I realize that they're not. It's a very specific kind of person that is actually curious and then actions on their curiosity. So I think there's two kinds of people, right? I had this debate with, my, not debate, actually, a discussion, very interesting discussion with my son. So we were both like you, we don't believe in God, or we don't believe in, like, a very, I'm, I'm actually, it's an uninteresting conversation. Do I believe in God? I don't believe in the current constructs of God in any way, means, or form, right? So so mm. let's not get into the debate of, you know, was there a creator or whatever. It's a separate so, podcast. Yeah, it's a separate podcast. But Cal came to me and said, Dad, are you ever upset with the people who created religion? Uh, like, uh, did you ever feel like these guys who did it, look at what all they've caused way back when, like, if you could go back and stop them, would you? And like, I had to think for a second, like, 
And so there's a number a great of question. Well, there's a number of reasons. Yeah, it's a great question. There's a number of reasons why, and I love it that he's curious, right? That he's asking great questions. In fact, he's much better at it than me. Like I feel like shit. Why is he asking this now? I felt like I only asked that in my twenties. But yeah. um, what I said to him that day was, I said, Cal, why we shouldn't is that you've got to understand that those people solved a real purpose. So I believe that there's two types of people. We go back way, way, way back when you had hunters and you had gatherers, right? Um, so hunters went out and hunted like, you know, bison and gatherers, you know, picked up, you know, stuff that was on the, on the ground and got things. I think that was exactly the same with knowledge. Hunters went out, you have knowledge hunters and you have knowledge gatherers. Knowledge hunters are people who look at things and they think, I don't know, why, why is there thunder? And why does after the thunder happen, rain fall down? Now, they have no scientific explanation for this. So it must be like, we've got to create something. So they started looking for an explanation. They're like, well, it does sound like the gods are angry. Thunder sounds like anger. And then there's a reaction to that. So maybe God is angry and maybe these are the tears of the gods falling down or these things. Maybe, maybe this is a way of expressing it. And actually, mm. in the absence of any science, that's a perfectly a reasonable explanation. So the yeah. people who created religion earlier, the, 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 those shamans, they were the people that we would be, we'd be having lunch with today. They were the ones curious enough to turn around and look and say, why are they doing that? And then let's create go, a story. Let's create a story, like a narrative. Yeah. Yeah. And they, weren't, they were saying they were right because with the evidence they had, they were correct. You know, people yeah. will often turn around and say to me, um, oh, but look at the likes of, you know, um, C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis was a Christian, even though blah, 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 blah. And he was a very smart guy. Or look at, you know, Einstein was religious. I said, yes, but like, you know, a lot of these people were also smokers because at that time there was no evidence of them smoking. But now if you had those same people today and you asked them, would they be likely to be smoking cigarettes? The answer would probably be no. And if you fast forward, you know, 50 years, would they still be eating meat? The answer would probably be no. So mm. we have to understand the, the narrative structure of the time. And so what you have is you have these knowledge hunters out there um, who are trying to do the best with what they can. And then we go to the second group, the kind of group you mentioned earlier, and they are knowledge gatherers. They, mm. they want to be thinking about what they're thinking about, and they're perfectly happy to accept your explanation of what that might be without doing any of the rigorous looking themselves. So they're happy to gather opinions that other people have formed. So some people yeah. want to form and hunt the opinions and thinking, and some people want to gather it. Now, I think that all of us play in that realm in different spaces. Like, I'm not that interested in how they make this, right? That's not something. I'm happy that it's made, and I'm happy to believe certain things um, mm. around certain topics that I'm not going to go and spend the time to be rigorously looking at. But for the mm. most part, I would categorize you definitely and me as knowledge, as hunters, not gatherers. Mm. And I think that's the difference between the, that's what makes the, and I think your guests in general. If you look yeah. at your guests as a cross-section, I think the one thing you'll find that if you look at them, for the most part, they fall in the knowledge hunter category, not the knowledge gatherer category. Absolutely. And to add on to that, most of the guests that I'm speaking to, in fact, blanket all of them. And in fact, I would verge to say that most of the people you and I like to sit and engage with are not only hunters, they're also actions. So once they've hunted the knowledge, they do something about the knowledge. And I'll give you a great example. My, my most recent guest who just blew my brain is a guy called Rob McGuinness and his company is Prometheus Fuel. 
He's a scientist and he has figured out a way to pull CO2 molecules out of the atmosphere, getting rid of that problem, and turn it into gas that we can put into our planes and cars today. That took him six years to figure out. He was hunting that knowledge for six years before he was like, okay, I'm ready to build this thing. And then he built it. So they're not only just hunters, and I love that hunter, they're also doers on top of the hunting. So they're the guys or women who will get the hunting done and then cut the meat and fry it and get it done. Like it's incredible to watch. And a lot, and I think that's very specific to your platform and to this, yes. the, this, this curious cult of what you're doing. I think though there yes. are certain people who are maybe very happy to be quite philosophical about it. Uh, who, they're not necessarily doers. They're very, very happy to have an academic relationship with certain content. They don't necessarily Absolutely. want to take that and turn it into it. And I think that we actually need a bit of both. So what you'll generally find is the the that person you brought on, the Prometheus guy, may have have within the realm of his team some. Um, purist knowledge hunters who are simply trying to solve the maths, who are simply trying to solve the physics. And then there's that practical hunter who's saying, well, and I often talk about the knowledge calories. We consume knowledge calories, but we only burn them when we we burn them with action. And I think that Mm. the people who win are probably the ones who, who get that blend correct. Yes, or who are smart enough to surround themselves with doers if they're only academics and vice versa, right? And yes. In fact, Justin Spratt just tweeted, so crazy that this ties in, can the gen- director general of the World Health Organization or should the director of the World Health Organization have a medical degree? And my answer was no. I don't think he has to or she has to. I think if they're smart enough to be the leader, they can surround themselves with the right people and then do the right thing. So I think it's a collection. It's never yeah. it's never binary here. The CEO of the Entrepreneurs Organization, the largest network of entrepreneurs, has never run a business in her life. She's an amazing yeah. CEO of large member-driven organizations. So what do we exactly. want here? Do we want them to be the doctor or do we want you know, the entrepreneur or do we want to be the person who understands how live, large hive minds should work? Um, yes. I think also with the spready thing, it's not to say that being a doctor should necessarily preclude you from doing it. It just shouldn't be a a mandatory thing. And by the way, I just wanted to, before we vilify people, if it wasn't clear, I do not, I don't believe the world would work if it was all knowledge hunters. I think we require, we would all be lost. We would never get anything done if we all had to hunt for our own answers to everything. At some point, we have to become knowledge gatherers. gatherers. And there are people, probably the engine, the people who run the engines of society, the people that keep the wheels turning, they're the knowledge um, gatherers. Yeah. I often use military and history as examples. And I talk about, you know, the leaders versus the, the attributes of the leader versus the, the manager. And the manager has to often be smart and diligent, but the leader has to be smart and lazy. The leader might be trying to find new ways of doing things because they're curious. Like, could this be done better? Mm. But the manager, or in the, in the case of where I got this from, the, the, the non-commissioned officer versus the officer, the sergeant versus the lieutenant, the sergeant just has to be smart enough to go and follow the orders and to do what needs to be done to get the job done. The world needs most. And in fact, we probably need a much, much smaller ratio of knowledge hunters than we do to knowledge gatherers. Totally agree. It's it's one of my bugbears about small business and entrepreneurship is there are a lot of people who say, oh, everyone can be an entrepreneur. Bullshit. That's absolutely fundamentally not true because then, and this is selfish, who's going to work in my company? If everyone's an entrepreneur, who's building my business with me? Because they're all going to want their own business. So I agree with that. And and it applies to so many other things is you can't all lead. 
we've over glorified entrepreneurship to the point that everybody thinks they want to do it. It's really, it's really oh, like man. only, it's, only really good hard. For, it's really hard and certain people will love it and certain people won't. Yeah. In fact, what I've learned in this current crisis is that, and this actually goes very re relevant to what you're saying is, I mean, you've known me for years and I'm always lost. And I, in fact, in the introduction, I was saying about how I'm not quite sure what I want to do right now. I'm sure that I want to be working on missing link stuff all day until nine o'clock at night and wake up first thing in the morning and get started again because there's so much to solve. Actually, I'm only good in this. I am a terrible cruising altitude um, owner of a business because it's so boring problem solver. and there's nothing to solve. There's nothing to be curious hmm. about. And in fact, comfort is the enemy of curiosity because, because nice. thanks man, I always like to <laughs> alliterate, <laughs> but comfort is the enemy of curiosity because if, when when my business was doing okay, my problem was I got into an okay state where I have enough stuff and my life is nice, you know, I don't need for more mm. uh, relatively early on. And my focus shifted that there was no real desire to get curious about making this thing bigger because my life was cool. And so yeah. it actually made me complacent. Uh, whereas now the discomfort we're in right now has like flicked a switch in. I definitely know you. I definitely know all of our friends basically are now... Mm. Very few of our friends are sitting there saying, woe is me. Most of our friends understand yeah. the challenge we're in, but we're also highly committed to what an exciting opportunity this is because yeah. um, curiosity lives here. 100%. And I also, for me, I kind of like the idea of being someone who could build something inside of adversity and overcome adversity and then look back and go, hey, I built something in that. There's like a little bit of pride attached to that too. Mm. And I think that ego is so t closely tied to this curiosity, the knowledge hunters. I think that there's a little bit of ego there that you're going out to, to hunt that statement and make it yours. That strong opinions, weekly held thing, you want the strong opinion to take back to the gatherers and go, look, I made this, you can now distribute it to the world. Yes. And then it's owned to you. And I, I kind of, I like that. And there is, for me, we, we're going to speak about it just now, but there is a lot of stuff that offshoots from curiosity and ego is one of them. Failure is another, innovation is another. These things are all attached and, and tied together. And you, you said to me a little bit that you were struggling with that idea of failure and curiosity and innovation all being uh, worked together. So I framed it in a different kind of question for you. Your team right now is all sorts of active and busy. They're being curious, they're innovating, they're trying new things, but I guarantee you they're not fearful of failure. They're, they're not from you. Like you're not making them fearful of failure. You're saying to them, go, go try things, come back and tell me if it worked. But if they were fearful of failure, they wouldn't be trying things. They wouldn't be curious. Okay, but so so fear of failure is very different to failure. Sometimes I think you glorify yeah. failure um, to the detriment of maybe glorifying the fear of failure. The fire yeah. that has been ignited in me right now is around the failure, fear of failure. Getting to a point okay. when the plane is on the decline, you know, if I can still rescue it, that's very, very exciting. If the, if the plane mm -hmm. smashes into the ground, that's not as exciting. Um, yeah. I've certainly, the first... Uh, we, you know, I came out the gates with a big rallying call to the team. This is going to be amazing, guys. What if this was the best opportunity? And Because that's actually the question that I'm trying to make sure that my whole team thinks about. Is at some point mm. in the future, you turn around to somebody and say, actually, this period was the best thing that ever happened to Missing Link and, and us. And then they say, mm. why? And we've got to figure out the answer to that question. Start with the lens that two years from now, this is the best thing and work back from there. So that forces yeah. a curiosity. However, on the Wednesday, we went to them and said, guys, just so you understand, as much as gung-ho and as excited as we are about all of these things, technically, we've got one more month's salary in the bank. If people don't start paying, we're not going to be able to pay you. 
we need to come up with new modes of how can mm. we solve the problem of salary in different ways. And we came up yeah. with some really, really cool models. So for example, one of ours was, and again, this is where the, the adversity only made us think of this thing. But and I'm going to take you to a little bit further in this. But we said to them, hey, what happens if we don't allow you to do moonlighting work? So if you make videos for us, you can't go make videos for other people. We were going to lift that restriction and let you go and make videos for other people if you can get video work on Upwork or anything like this, because you know somebody yeah. needs it. However, yeah. we ask you one favor. Would you be willing to commit to saying if you earn 20,000 Rand uh, by doing work on Upwork, the, you know, while we're technically paying your time, that we can remove that from our salary demands to you. So we'll still pay you the rest to get you up to your salary period. And they were like, yeah, that sounds totally reasonable. So oh. everybody, everybody understands that all we're trying to get through this period with is making our salary, whichever way we can. So another interesting thing is our Adobe license came up for renewal, quarter of a million Rand for our monthly, for our annual Adobe license. Now, if I'd gone to the team in the past and said, hey, guys, I'm thinking of canceling Adobe Creative Cloud, they'd be like, no, but the other tools are terrible, things, blah, 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 blah. But now we're going back to them saying, hey, guys, we've got a choice to pay right now. We can either pay the salaries or we can pay the license for the video software. We'll leave this up to you. Do some of you want to resign or do all of you want to try and find an alternative open source software platform that we can edit on? Immediately. Right. Now, let's say we carry on with that for two or three months. Maybe they come around and then they say at the end of it, say, Rich, this is really, really horrific. We would definitely mm. rather be using the software. Then we go back. Or maybe they say, actually, for the most part, this is really good. What we wouldn't mind is paying for these few plugins that will actually yes. level us up to this. Is that something we could look yes. at? And um, that's what we think we'll get to. So the fear of failure um, removes the friction for change. Absolutely. I think it's important, though, to recognize that there are different kinds of fear of failure. So right now we're talking about crisis fear of failure. Let's just take this forward two years. Missing Link is great. And you have a team that does things this way. And the, you instill a fear in them that if they do it a different way, they will fail and get fired. Because that's a lot of corporates. That's not our businesses. Yeah, say, yeah. Most corporates... This is the way that it runs, right? And that fear of failure, fear of branching out of the norm, prevents people from becoming curious, finding a solution, and then innovating. And the example I give in my uh, curios curiosity talk is the invention of scotch tape at 3M. Yeah. One of the scientists that uh, just went and did it on his own. Imagine if he was fearful of his job. He would never have taken the two years of his own time to build the sticky stuff that became scotch tape. Or like Art Fry in the post-it notes, right? It was a failure. Exactly. Um, exactly. The potato chip. The potato chip was a, a failure. A guy had actually tried to make a joke to an irritating customer and then crisps were born. But um, yeah. listen, I, I don't dispute that at all. And I think organizations should. Now, here's the funny thing is if you go on and look on in that 3M story, it ended up mm. being what killed them because they nearly damaged their own creativity. They, they, they became the world's most innovative firm for a while. But then what yes. they said is, hey, we're so innovative. We need to, to find the recipe for innovation. For innovation. So what they did is they created a process, uh, the process and the recipe for innovation, which ended up yeah. being what killed innovation at 3M. And yeah. if, you, if you search for the article 3M Innovation and Six Sigma, yeah, because I think mm -hmm. it would be really, really good research for your book. The, cool. the guy eventually came back and he turned around and he said, um, this is a problem because the entire process, we've got to get back to the process where, where actually just giving us the freedom to think. However, this is, this is the seesaw. This is the balance because mm. um, if most people, and again, remember hunters, gatherers, 
if most yep. gatherers are told, just do what you like, be free with your thinking, people have to rethink everything every time. So the job is not to avoid process, it's to understand that process is not sacred. So there needs to be, a, there needs to be I have a process and legacide around how do we question which process is still valid? And I always come hmm. back to basically two questions. What problem were three questions? What problem were we solving? Does the problem still exist? And if it still exists, is this still the best way? And that's yeah. a question you should ask. And the mindset shouldn't be ever that I'm saying to you, this is wrong. This process is wrong. Because that's an yeah. attack on somebody who created it. The mindset should always be, I'm not saying this was wrong when you when we did it. I'm saying it's no longer right. And Absolutely. just changing that narrative. But my worry is that if we make everything, so I'm not into these totally holocratic organizations and even great mm. firms like Matt Mullenberg's um, uh, uh, automatic, automatic. Uh, mm. still hierarchical, you know, it's not, uh, there's still systems. In fact, for it to work well, there has to be, how do we behave on a call? Uh, I don't know if you see Elon Musk, for example, there's no acronyms, there's, mm -hmm. like there's still rules and laws. We just got to have fun yeah. rules and laws. So there yeah. can't be... And, and this, interestingly, for me, it does start one of the things that I talk about a lot is you can't preach this genius, innovation, curiosity, culture, if you've hired the wrong people. This all starts with hiring the absolute best people for the kind of culture you want to build. You can't retrofit this curious culture into a business that's been 25 years one way, and you've hired one person to do one job for 25 years. And then all of a sudden you say to them, hey, by the way, we just need you to innovate a new process here. That's your job now. There is no functional way that that person can become the thing you want them to become. So you have to hire for the kind of thing you're trying to do or, or find the right people in your organization. You can't like square peg round hole them into this curious way of thinking. Because like you've said, some people do not want to be curious. They want to do their job repetitively. It's what makes them happy. It's what makes them good at what they do. Yeah. And I think what you probably have to figure out is what is the ratio of, of, Curious yes. to non-curious. I don't want to say non-curious. Maybe I'll stick with hunter and gatherer just for the sake of this. But yeah. what yeah. is the ratio? Because I don't want everybody, and in, if you run a factory, you don't want everybody at odds with how this factory should run. You want certain people just accepting that this is how it's and going just to do. doing the and work. Certain people questioning the validity of how this can happen and what, and what can we do. I mean, ironically, Absolutely. one of the most innovative societies in the world is one that least least allows for open curiosity, and that's the Japanese. I mean, mm. they, they're very hierarchical and very, very structured yeah. about the way. And if you want to make a change, you have to go to there. It's got to go to there. It's got to go to there. There's got to be like a, you, you have the meeting. We can't have a meeting during the day. You've got to save it for drinks at night because there are certain, I mean, literally rules that you cannot do it. Uh, drinks at night, I don't know if you know, like mandatory in Japan. It's actually part of your mm. meeting day because then you can say things at, that during an evening. Wow. I can say, hey, the way you handled that today wasn't really nice for me. And then we get over a drink and then we smile. And the next day we go back to work and we pretend we never spoke about it again. And right. it's bond building and things. But yeah. then, And then so you'll know somebody who knows somebody and then you'll socialize it there. And then if they come back and tell you, okay, it's socialized, then you can submit a document. So bizarrely, it's not to say the curious people don't exist, but it's, it's like so counterintuitive that some of mm. the greatest innovations in the world would come out of Japan. Like I, like I don't yeah. understand how it works. Anyway, to go back to your point, I think you're spot on like i wish how do we test for it though how do i find the people that have the curious gene that are members of the curious cult to come in 
Yeah, that's it's a great question, and that's why I'm writing this book. Is because I do believe that there are things that curious people show and display. I, interestingly, I do think that we are at the end of my 12 months of recording these podcasts with all these people. I'm going to have a very clear idea of the kinds of things, and I'm already getting words that people use, and that's actually the next one on on the list of things I want to talk about is this obsession. Curious people are obsessed with something. It doesn't matter what. And the example that I use that my podcast listeners are so sick of hearing is Charles Darwin. He did not want to come up with the theory of evolution. He was obsessed with marine invertebrates. And that led him to many, many years of research that led him to the theory of evolution. He was an obsessive person. So that's one of the things. And the thing that I'm finding more and more is curious people are obsessive learners. And I would put you in that bracket. You have this lifelong, constant, obsessive learning culture about you. I see it in your kids. I see it in your work. So the question that I want to ask you is, how do you engage in this learning in your personal life? Do you set time aside? Is it always on? Like, what is it that you do to push this learning culture in your life? Okay. Um, I want to I want to take one step back to one thing you said because I think it's absolutely spot on. I think, in fact, there's something we did. This goes back to a previous point you asked about hiring for curiosity. Um, mm. I always say that in those leaders, again, hiring for leadership positions, hiring for I always try to hire somebody who has something they'd rather be doing is a great starting point. So I would rather you know if we have lunch, I'm going to try and talk you into playing a board game, right? And I'm relatively obsessed about that. But again, for now, like give me a year and I might be trying to get you. I mean, the other day you and I were playing Rubik's Cubes. You can, I can actually see your book mm. behind, right? And so both of us sitting there doing that. Like, but there's always something we're trying to solve for. You know, we want to try yeah. and figure this out. I think that the best people like Don, uh, who's one of the owners of uh, got a shoulder missing link, uh, you know well, he's into birds. Now, Don will be sitting in a meeting with somebody and he could get a message saying, you know, a lesser spotted eagle tit or whatever it's called is has been seen in uh, uh, Midrand. And he'll turn yeah. around to the guys in the meeting and say, guys, I'm so sorry, but um, I let this watch it. And, and what I love about South Africa is people are like, totes legit. That sounds reasonable. Go get it. You can do this. And yeah. the truth is about those people is if you hire people who have something better to be doing with their time than just work, they'll always mm. be trying to find better ways to get their work done. The scary, mm. the counterintuitive thing is the scariest people, um, the scariest people to your business to maintain the status quo are those people who are the first in and the last out every day because they're very, very happy to be at work because they like work. They like how work works. So for them, they're happy just to stay there and diligently go through the functions. You actually want people with something better to go. So that's just the thing about obsession. And uh, so Yeah, I just on that, they're not disrupting their workplace, right? Because they like the way it is. They like the way it works. And they're comfortable with it in status quo. And I think both of us don't like status quo. We like to push the status quo a little bit further all the time. So you want those people to be the gatherers and stick around, but they're never going to be the leaders in your business to push it forward. And what everybody needs to understand is that any given time, um, uh, uh, status quo, you know, this this virus attacks people who are weaker in certain ways, respiratory weaker, older, things like this. Um, I know there's a politically correct term for it, whatever, um, that term. Uh, but um, immuno, anyway, it attacks, oh, okay, yeah. it attacks yeah. people who are weaker in certain ways. The, uh, the yeah. intellectual virus, the mimetic virus also attacks the weak. And what this has done and anything like this is it attacks the status quo. So the best thing that has happened is the status quo in your business is at its weakest now than it's been for years probably even weaker than the financial crisis we had. The status quo in your business is weaker than it's ever been. This is the best time to have people who change things. Now, again, 
I love having those hardworking people that are in first thing in the morning, last thing at night, but they're not the people who are going yeah. to lead your business to where it needs to go. That's a, so that's, let's park that and go to the learning question. Mm. I'm a very mm. passive learner, so I'm not an active learner. I, I think um, the ninja skill for me for learning a lot is that I read more fiction than nonfiction um, because there's, there's a few reasons for it. Fiction, fiction offers hypothesis. So most good fiction nowadays is pretty well researched, even great science fiction. Um, one of the best books I read last year or the year before is a series called Scythe. And um, uh, the, the book offers an alternate future where we've solved for disease. Okay? It doesn't exist anymore. We don't die. We've actually solved death. Wow. But then it creates some, okay, but then what would society look like? How would we control society where dying wasn't going to happen? And he offers an amazingly thought out hypothesis that has informed so much of my thinking around certain way to handle certain things. Or you'll know that if I do a talk, I often talk about uh, Wellesley and Napoleon and battlefields. The, the thing I was talking about, Smart Lazy, that uh, mm. story by um, the uh, Hammerstein Eckhart, who was basically the head of HR for, for the German army before World War II. And um, like, it's all these things that I, I've learned in passing. So because curiosity for me is a, is a, is a leisure sport, it's not that I sit there. It's not like Bill Gates. If you watch that thing of Bill Gates series, Inside Bill Gates Head, yeah. you know, he takes 20 books, goes away, reads them. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, that is probably to be a, a person who can simultaneously build seven factories, uh, seven plants, who can take <laughs> nuclear, uh, you know. Yeah, it's, it's irritating. Yeah, like that's the formula if you want to be that guy. Me, I just want to be like yeah. get along and have a great life and have cool conversations with myself <laughs> in my head. So yeah. I find that I want to be, I'm always engaged with story and, and content and things. And what I love is those, even the great like thrillers, thriller writers, they're teaching about military practices. They're teaching about how things happen. They're giving you so much knowledge. And then what happens? And I'm sure you've done this as well. You're reading a great book and you're like, no, that can't be true. And then you go yeah. and you, I read a book last year called The Bees. And it's basically, imagine the Hunger Games, Hmm. but in a beehive in from the perspective of a bee where there's no thinking because yeah. they're bees it's not like anthropomorphic bees it's literally a beehive getting described from the point of view of one bee and and it, wow. it comes across like a hunger game story it's like crazy how bees and societies work so i'm reading this yeah. book and the whole time i'm reading i'm like no there's no way that happens and then i google i'm like oh my god that happens so this woman snuck in teaching me how beehives work to the point that I've added become a beekeeper to my list of 100 things I want to achieve in my life Amazing. under the premise of a fictional book about a society of bees. Mind blown. It, it's amazing. And it's so funny you mentioned fiction because over the last four or five years, I've, I've almost come to a stop on reading business books. So the only kind of business books I read are uh, biographies or autobiographies of people that I want to learn more about. So right now I'm reading the Bob Iger, the Disney CEO biography, really interesting, smart guy, but his whole first 3%, 4% is one long story. It's not teaching you anything. It's just telling you a story. So I'm, I'm enjoying the storytelling aspect of it. The book that tipped me towards sci-fi and made me literally stop and go, 
this can this must be real. This is too well described to be fake. Was the three body problem, which you and I have spoken about ad nauseum. It is the book that changed my perception on the entire world, on everything that I ever believed. And it's not a real book. It's a fiction book, but it's so close to real that I actually started looking into the quantum physics and the physics and all of the stuff because I was like, this is just too insane. And it, most of it was based on actual quantum physics, which to me is just mind bending. So let's look at what the difference is there. So now I don't not read any business books. Like I'm reading Impossible Conversations at the moment and I'm enjoying it. There's certain times where I think, oh, I wish I was better at this. Um, there was a scenario in my past recently where I thought I have to be able to be better at conversing in order to deal with a specific situation. So I bought a book mm. about learning how to do that. Right, you mentioned yeah. radical candor um, in a, in a video recently. It's a great book, and, a, and you know, so there's certain things where we've got to. It's good to learn, and generally, mm. generally, there I take what they're doing and I become a knowledge gatherer. I'm saying I'm going to outsource the thinking here to you. I'm going to assume that you've done rigor and research, and for the most part, I'm going to try what you've said. I'm going to take your that atomic is. habits and I'm going to give them a couple of goes until I find what works for me. That's yeah. knowledge gathering, and it's important. I want people to gather or present. I've written a book called Boredom Stater. I want them to take some of my practices in presentation theory and try them. Like I've got 23 years experience here. Try and work with this thing. You don't have to spend too much time thinking about it. Now, take this away from what we both just described from fiction. Fiction, somebody offered a hypothesis. They offered a story and a narrative that unlocked a curiosity in your brain. And both of us said the same thing. We went and looked. So mm -hmm. there it forced you to become a knowledge gatherer because what they didn't do is give you answers. What good fiction does is it gives you questions. It forces you to think, is that really how Absolutely. that works? How does that work? I learned about square breathing that the Navy SEALs use from fiction. Mm. I was like, oh, I mean, we mm. got square breathing and let me look at these things. Yeah. And you want knowledge. Sometimes some knowledge must create questions and some knowledge must create answers. And what I love about good fiction is often good fiction will give you some answers, but more often than not, it will just give you a lot of questions you want to research yourself. So you become invested in the learning. And I mean, this does lead me towards one of the, the questions that we were going to talk about later, but it's one that most of the people I speak to struggle with is how do you know what to dive into as someone who's hunting knowledge? or to be passive and be a gatherer. Just to use the lexicon we've used for this whole conversation, more along the lines of what I normally ask is, curiosity is not efficient, right? So people like us are hungry all the time for more and more interesting knowledge. When do you, as Rich, choose, I'm gonna double down on board games and I'm gonna ignore this? Because you have, you've made a conscious choice, right? And board games have meant that you've had to ignore a whole lot of things that you could have been curious about. So how do you pick those things? Right, but I mean, so here's a game. The other day it's called 13 Days. Would you know what 13 Days would refer to? A zombie apocalypse. So 13 Days is how long the Cuban Missile Crisis oh. lasted for. Oh. Right? Now, <laughs> okay. Cuban Missile Crisis is one of the best. It is a microcosm of human decision-making with the entire world. Was, it was the closest we've ever been to all-out war. Right, We were on the brink of all-out war. And in this game i was playing this game and every card is a little event card and every event card has a little reference to a book and i'm sitting playing a game and it's interrupting teaching me about these things so even the i think we must always be open to passive learning as part one okay so mm -hmm. uh, and i think this is what some people would just play this game and never bother saying wait a minute was it really a private letter that went between yeah. Khrushchev and Kennedy? Where did they find a way to communicate in non-diplomatic terms because they actually just wanted to say listen dude like, I don't want to bomb you. Could we just could we calm our tits a little bit? And that's yeah. the background, but like inside, you're like, guys, we must be here. Yeah. So, mm. so then you read more. 
However, for other knowledge, I want to start with the victory condition. So if I want to separate, and let's go back to what I said a few minutes ago, I had a literally a conversation I was going to have with somebody that was so critical that I wanted to be better at it. So I went back and looked, and there was a few options. There's crucial conversations, which I'd already read. Um, there was radical candor, at least I'd, I'd already um, studied an abstract of both of those. And then there was this idea of impossible conversations. And I thought, that's actually how this feels, because it weaves mm. personal and emotional and thingies. And, um, and so that's where I went to. I was solving for something. I wasn't right, because the problem with most information is if you consume it at the wrong time, it's not gonna be helpful. So let me give you a case in point for that. One of the best books I've ever read was a book called Who Moved My Cheese, which is so completely absurd, except my business coach was a man by the name of Wolf Fawcett, a Brent who you know now, Brent and I actually met, both being coached by Wolf. And I was once I got into a fight with one of our big customers who had asked us to change the way that we work with them or else they wouldn't hire us. And then we said no, so they stopped hiring us. And I was writing this big, long letter about how unfair this was and blah, blah, blah. And I was like four pages in. My business coach arrived for a one-on-one -on -one meeting and I read him the letter and he said, he's a German guy. I said, please, wait one second. And he pissed off. I was like, this is, I mean, he's paying I'm not paying this guy for bullshit. So he goes to Northgate and he buys a copy of Who Moved My Cheese? And he comes back into the office and he says, before you do anything, I want you to promise me one thing. Here's a little book. And it's it's 20 pages of stupid American mm. preamble. It's a 30-page mm. allegory and another 20 pages of post-amble, if that's a word, right? Like, it yeah. really could be the allegory of 30 minutes about ham and haw or whatever. I read this book. I deleted the letter to Nissen, and I understood that my cheese had been moved, and I moved on there. In fact, right now, Who Moved My Cheese is probably the most important book that most people could read. Right? Yeah, everyone should be selling out everywhere. Yeah. For now, right? Yeah. The thing is, if I'd read that book two weeks before, it would have been crap Americanized rubbish. Or if I'd even read the book a year later, it wouldn't have resonated because mm. I would have forgotten that story with that customer. Knowledge should be intentional. We're not, unless you're trying to get an academic result or something like this, which is an intention and a victory condition of itself, random consumption of knowledge just becomes knowledge calories again. It's all. Yeah. Now, you may be the kind of person who reads something and you're running a business so you immediately put this practice in place. But for the most part, it's much, much better to say, hey, in the next three months, I've got to be better at this or I've got to solve for this. Let me try and find. So my intentional knowledge always has something I'm getting towards. And the, of course, the, the, the outside case of that is when three or four of my mates all turn around and say to me, wow, this book really blew my mind. Then I'll read that as well. And incidentally, it's why I like Absolutely. Gladwell so much, because Gladwell actually, I don't often agree with him at the end of his books, but I love every word, every morsel of information. And Gladwell actually falls for me under the category of something I can read lying in bed. It's like, it's almost like fiction. Whereas business He's such a great storyteller. Exactly. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. I went on a tangent. No, 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 that was brilliant. Um, so what I actually want to do is shift this conversation more directly to your current crisis and missing link, because so much of what we're talking about uh, applies to your, I think it's now 25 year old business. So just just for, for my listeners sake, give give us a, a one liner on what missing link is. And then I want to ask you some questions. Okay, so Missing Link is a presentation organization. We, under, we work under the premise that um, a good presentation is written before it's designed, before it's delivered, and we help organizations with those three aspects. Crafting the right message that you have to deliver to your audience, uh, uh, creating the visuals, the work 
with your message, not against your message, and then training you as a speaker. So when you get on that stage, you grab them by the throat and drag them to the end. So we help organizations create presentations and a larger scale, uh, the collective noun of presentations, which is conferences and events uh, that activate audiences. Uh, it's 23 years old now. So I started when I was 22 and I'm 45 now. Yeah. Cool. I mean, that in itself is just a phenomenal feat to have a business that is older than your child, for example. <laughs> well, I have staff now that work there. They've never, never lived in a world in which my company didn't exist. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is quite a thing. I mean, we, we often just glance over that, but it's phenomenal. Literally, I, the longest thing I've ever done is seven years. Uh, longest business I've ever been in. My relationship is the longest thing I've ever done, actually. And it's a great uh, relationship. Years. So well done. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, she's the reason I'm still sane, I suppose. I think that the, everything we've spoken about applies so directly to Missing Link right now because you guys are going out and hunting this new kind of knowledge that, that we're in because the whole presentation industry has just, for lack of a better statement, been destroyed as it was. And now it's becoming something different. So you as a leader uh, have got so many different roles to play, right? One, you have to go and hunt the new direction. Two, you have to go and gather existing knowledge. Three, you have to relay that to your team. So the first question I want to ask you is, how do you choose in a time of crisis like this, what you do as a leader? Because you're a smart enough person that you could you could manage the podcasting technology. You could do crowdcast. You could do everything. What are you choosing to do and how? I almost certainly made myself um, product development and marketing, right? So those are the, so I can come up with the ideas and I'm pretty good at solving new problems for people. And my lens is, and also it's, it's, it's unfair to say that other people can't do it. Um, even, even in the best organizations, people aren't sure what they have permission to do. So, you know, we, if somebody came back to me and said, hey, we're going to do this product that does this, I could just easily say no, because I still want to solve a presentation. So I've been focusing on, and again, I say product design, but it's actually just, that's a very, very fancy way for just saying um, problem solving. Because all that I try to do is I realize that um, businesses become very centered around the solution that they offer. But actually when they started, they were really just about solving a problem that existed. And Missing Link is like, oh my God, they've canceled all live events. We do presentations in a world in which events have canceled. And like, we honestly, we had a one day pity party. We were like, oh, panic, panic, panic. And then the realization was, hold on a second. Um, is leadership communication more important or less important now than it was a year ago? And absolutely 100% more important. Second of all, are we being thrust into an environment where there are a whole bunch of new presentation related skills? We do presentation training that are required for people to learn very, very quickly and the need is real. Yes. Um, do we believe that actually the frequency of how often leaders have to communicate right now has escalated or, or uh, de-escalated, escalated? So mm. why am I worried? I'm worried because the current solution under which we offered, the, 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 the framework has changed and evolved, but the problem exists actually in a bigger case, in a bigger way than it did before. Now, there are other challenges, and the other challenges are things like our clients don't have as much money to spend. But then what we realize is, well, that works because it's actually cheaper to book Crowdcast than it is to book the Santon Convention Center. So all of a sudden, and we're, we're able to change people's mindsets around what it is they're doing. So everything for me has been framing around what problems can I solve for these people now that will change their opinion of what my organization is a year from now. Because that is very, very critical. So I want to come out of this 
not being as just the guys who did this. Anybody, what is not a pivot for me right now, and I understand that you've got to do what you've got to do to survive, and I'm absolutely more power to you if you need to. But if you were a company, a friend of mine has a board game company in Utah, and um, he can't sell games, and the distributors aren't paying him, but he was an importer already, so he's imported um, a IN95 masks, and he's selling those. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, because what he realized, what I actually am, is an importer and distributor of stuff to people who need it. Um, These are the skills I have, and I can use them in different ways. Yeah. Right. So so by all means that, but in my case, he's going to want to go back to being a board game company. Now, hopefully he'll learn certain things. Maybe he'll learn, well, I don't need a distributor because I was a distributor here, so I can work directly. But for me, I want to turn around and say, at the end of this company, our company must have evolved. So I am... I am. Trojan horsing in a whole bunch of change. We're saying to our staff, why would we ever go back to the office? Now, for reference for your listeners, our office has been a big part of our marketing. We'd won world's coolest office by Inc. Magazine in our company size, and we'd done all kinds of different things, and people always loved the office. But it was never about the office. It was always about the experience we could give when you came to our office. But that office has been one of our biggest single limiting factors because it requires geography. So it means that if you if you are not within a 45-minute driving radius of the four-ways area in Johannesburg, mm. you're not going to get the full customer experience. Therefore, we're probably not going to get much of your work. So even yeah. though I live in Cape Town, we have a fraction of the size of Cape Town clients as we do Jober clients. And we have a fraction of the size of international clients as we do Jober clients. What this has changed is everything. So we're saying to our guys, we're not going back. I don't want to go back. And well, it's, I mean, I don't want to interrupt you, but it's literally your entire book of legacy. Legacide, you, you've just said it worked for a period. Now it stopped working. If we continue doing it, it's Legacide. It's time to move on from this because the world is different. Yes. And, and what an opportunity. So again, so let me tell you the best thing that's happened to this business during this crisis, right? The single best thing. I have somebody to blame for the first time in my life. If, the, if my business tanks, after 23 years of running this company, finally, my business can tank and I can make all those tough decisions because I was genuinely worried. We've been talking about getting rid of the office for three or four months, right? Mm. And, but then do, will our customers think that we're running out of business and we're losing our edge and doing our things and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. They may have, and we'd have to, we really did think about how we engineer the story. But now we turn around and say, guys, I've written a book on legacy thinking. What we learned during this crisis was that we can operate as well for clients. And in fact, there's many ways we can, all of our meetings are now recorded. We can give you feedback of clips of the key points of a meeting. Actually, meetings are massively improved by doing it this way. Therefore, why would we take you backwards to how we did it before? The office no longer makes sense. We're closing the office. So now I have a story. Now I have permission for the office narrative to fail, to move on. What frustrates me is how people aren't taking, like again, and I did a video on this the other day. But people are saying this too shall pass. That is, and I, I had a, a debate um, as well. It's I'm not saying I understand the Stoics and what they meant by that. What I'm saying is the idea of this too shall pass. The the narrative that hey yeah we're going to get to this when lockdown is over. Work under the premise that it will not be over, for two yeah. reasons. Well, one is just because like you don't know when it's going to be over, so don't live in a dream of two weeks time. But two, if you're working on the fact that you're going to go back to normal, that it will pass you by. You're not going to make meaningful changes. Every single day, I want my business to become better today because of something you have learned. Absolutely. And I think on this too shall pass. Um, yes. That's what that says. Um, but I think that there's an active and a passive this too shall pass. 
and you're talking about the active, this too shall pass. I want to actively think about how this is going to pass, what it means when it passes, where will I be when it passes? And then there are people who are going, yeah, this is going to pass. I'll be okay. I'm just going to sit yes. back and chill. And there is a fundamental difference between those two things. Um, my psychologist likes to say that waiting is an action. And I saw that you were also saying waiting, something around waiting in your post around this is that waiting is wrong. Waiting doesn't mean anything. And there's, again, two different versions of that, right? One is you can't wait and see. The other is prepare while you wait for what's coming. And I also do think sometimes waiting is a is a, a valid strategy. If, if I was in the middle of something, um, Donald Trump would have learned very, very well to perhaps wait before he spoke a, a number of times. Just to say, yeah. let's just give this a day or two to figure out what's happening. I have no problem with Cyril Ramaphosa arriving half an hour late for a press release because my theory mm. is he didn't go for a shit, right? And get a box of Smarties before. It was, guys, have we dotted this final? And, yeah. and I, the way I realized this is when he started going through some of the stuff, I was like, oh, I never would have thought of that. Oh my goodness. Jeez, this dude's got a lot to yeah. think about. Vets. I can't believe you even thought about vets. Like vets, me too. Right. So, so, so now I'm thinking, you know, take. You said five o'clock. It was six o'clock. We're okay because you took the time. You, yeah. I, I'm saying waiting is not a strategy. Waiting for hiding is not a strategy. Is maybe a better term yes. than waiting is not a strategy. Absolutely, because waiting is a viable strategy if you're planning while you're waiting, which is what you're talking about. Cyril, our South African president, was planning while they were delaying us. He wasn't hibernating. And I think that some exactly. people are going into this with a hibernation. We're going to sleep for the winter. The winter will pass and then we'll come out again. And, I think and everything will be strategy. fine. And again, yeah. this is where the curious thrive. I think the curious thrive in a crisis because there, there's so much to be curious about. There's so many questions mm. to hunt. How does this work? What are we doing? How do we figure this out? What are we doing? Whereas gatherers are waiting for the answers. Like, what are we supposed to Absolutely. do? Oh How is this going to work? What's happening? And they're the people, by the way, who are getting a lot of the time caught up in conspiracy theories because they just want something to hold on to. And just like yeah. I can look at some religious explanations to turn around and think, well, this is what it must be. Um, I would far rather, uh, uh, you know, find, oh, here's, it must be 5G towers. Yeah, of course it's not. But it must be. And again, we've heard this narrative before because it was 4G, it was 3G, it was, it was GG, it was pre-G. Yeah. But yeah. Um, okay, Rich, my final question is what is keeping you up at night right now? Because you're in quite a positive space and you're very optimistic and you're very energized. So what are the things that are keeping you up at night? Sure. Um, what, first of all, the one observation I've noticed, I'm, I'm able to, I go to bed and I read my, my novel that I'm reading at the moment. I'm reading about the migrants going through amazing, uh, do you know there's a trend called El Bistia, where people migrate, to how they get to El Norte, the, the North America, uh, from the Honduras, from Honduras and Guatemala and things, is they jump on a moving train. And there's a whole bunch of people. Sure. That, anyway, it's the thing, and they'd like die and yeah. fall off and there's like kidnapping and rape. Wow. And, and these people jump on these cargo trains because there's no train system. And that's the only way to get to the North. And it's uh, okay. anyway, so I'm reading about that, then I fall asleep. And so as long as my brain is busy, I'm okay. What I found is I'm waking up much earlier than I should. So when my brain starts sleeping, I'm not able to sustain it. And I'm waking up early. And that's when my worst of the whole thing happens is when okay. uh, I'm not busy. Right now, um, being not busy is a curse for me. Any moment where I'm stopping to think, because then I start thinking about, I'm trying to be optimistic. 
Okay, and I will definitely continue to communicate optimistic, but I'm also realistic. And I understand if too many people in a society then lose their jobs and no longer have work, um, they're going to do whatever it takes to feed their children and to keep their loved ones mm -hmm. safe. And that might mean that my loved ones are not as safe as they should be. And I don't understand the escape clause, and I don't think the priority of... Um, you know, running a presentation via uh, an online platform is going to help me uh, when people are running at me with pitchforks and things, you know, uh, yeah. and I worry about those type of things. So I worry about what if we don't do a good enough job for society? Um, I worry that like, about, like a, I worry about how I see people react at the moment, like Trump blaming the WHO and people blaming CEOs of companies or company, this company is behaving like this, this. Companies don't behave, right? There are no companies. There are no organizations. There are only other human beings trying to make decisions that they think is the best. The WHO mm -hmm. made mistakes because they also don't know. They've also never dealt with this in this way. And I, like, I'm seeing some attributes of people. And I also, like, I worry a lot, and it's actually evolved me, about how some people are just trying to make shit negative. Like they're just trying to to antagonize through this thing, and I've tried mm. to not be, but um, I did one probably slightly antagonistic social media post in this whole period, and it was about just taking people who are giving Bill Gates crap, um, like that. Was, and I just put out a post on that, but I've not engaged with anybody beyond it. It was just a, a thought, and I've left it. But um, yeah, th those are things that have really been frustrating me. The biggest one is probably that. Okay, let me just put this out there, and by the time this goes out, we'll probably have run this, but. The biggest, the biggest worry I have is that I can't see how this plays out. When I stop and rationalize, if unless when, no matter when we stop this from a South African context, we're not flattening any curve because when we stop it, more people will currently have it than would have had it when we started it. So we're, yeah. all we've done is we've put it, we've taken a, a spread holiday, but the instant those people come back to work, we all start it again and we mix it. So the only end state for this is, is a vaccine. And I can't understand how we can sustain to the point that as horrific as I think, I don't know if like at some point, do we literally just have to go and take our chances and find out ways to separate the people who are probably going to be safe from those who are not. And like, are we just going to have to suck it up? And, and because the, the, the fallout of complete economic collapse worries me a lot more than, than, even an astronomical amount of people dying of, of COVID-19, because I think many, yep. many, many, many more people could be affected and die because of the, all that economic collapse. So that's what keeps me awake at night. Yeah, I mean, and fundamentally, this is why the science and the narrative has shifted towards masks for all, because it's a way for us to get back into the economy by minimizing the effects of a virus like COVID. If everyone starts wearing masks, when they do anything out, we can open up the economy again. We can go to work again. We can't maybe eat at restaurants as often as we could because you have to take your mask off. But fundamentally, it's things that get us from zero, we're all affected, to 80%, most of us aren't affected. Those are the things we're going to have to do over time. That's I am not an expert, so I, I don't like to that. debate these points. I, I didn't realize um, that was what that was about, but I think it's genius. And yeah, I, this I, is the I, whole the narrative. And this is the whole narrative around the mask thing is, sure, it's not 100%, and that's not the point. The point is to get us back to normalcy as quickly as we can. The final thing, Rich, is you have the floor. Tell people where they can find you, follow you, anything you want to punt, the, the floor is yours. 
I would love to engage with you. Uh, probably my favorite place to engage at the moment is probably LinkedIn. So um, if you wanted to reach out for more conversation, that's possibly where I spend more of my time. Uh, Twitter tends to be more fun for me and things like this. Uh, Facebook is more family and friends. Uh, uh, but if you go to getrich.af, you will find that is a link farm to everything. So you'll find the links to all of the social feeds. Um, I would also love it if you engage with me on YouTube. I'm trying to grow my channel there. So that'd be nice. You could see how I think. Um, but yeah, just reach out on LinkedIn and say hi. And let me know that you came awesome. by the Curious Cult. Like, uh, I'd love to know that this was the context that came and then we have a nice starting point for our conversation. Rich, thank you so much for giving me your time. As always, never a dull conversation. Thanks, Nick. Love it. Thank you for listening to the Curious Cult podcast, the show where we talk to incredible people about their fascinating curiosity. If you like this episode, please rate the show, like it, share it, and generally be kind to us and tell people about it. My goal is to spark curiosity that changes the world. And you can help by talking about the show to anyone who will listen. Stay curious. Until next time.